Thanks for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast, where we bring together philanthropy scholars and fundraising practitioners to better understand the world of nonprofit development. What is being studied? What trends affect donor decisions? We'll bridge the gap between theory and practice to understand the future of philanthropy and how to make mission. I'm Anna Shalia, Vice President at Graham Pelton and PhD student studying philanthropy. My mission is to bring theory to practice, to highlight empirical knowledge from the fields of nonprofit management, organizational behavior, and philanthropy, and pair it with practical experience. Welcome back to the Make Mission podcast. We're excited today to be in conversation with Dr. Michael Jones and Joelle Rivera, talking all things crypto philanthropy, Web3, and what you need to know for your nonprofit moving forward, moving into the future. Thank you both for being here today. Before we get started, let me learn a, a bit more about you. How did you end up in the crypto space? Michael, how did you start uh, studying this field? So I finished my PhD in 2012 when Bitcoin was still very early on in the technology. And my research interests are more around labor economics, so understanding what determines why and how people work. And what happened was a few years ago, the university wanted to offer a course in cryptocurrency. In 2017, you had a huge run up in, in the price of Bitcoin. Students were really interested in this, and they said, we, we should offer a class. And because of the interdisciplinary nature of Bitcoin. You need students in computer science. You need to understand the economics and incentives. You need to understand the legal aspects. Wasn't really sure who would teach it. I said I would teach it. So I ran it as a, as a seminar, an honor seminar. Anyone across the university could do it. I approached the subject from a very economic perspective. So contrasting the monetary policy of our central bank, our Federal Reserve with Bitcoin, how do you value uh, cryptocurrency. So I brought an economic lens to it. And then since then, I've just taken and run with it. And the last year, we've seen it just an explosion of interest in, in the technology and what it can do. Yeah. So for me, um, I back in, in 27, you know, 2017, um, when, when it was kind of booming at the time, you know, it was with, with a group of my friends, we'll talk and we like invested the few dollars we had, you know, as a student, just to, to, to see like the excitement um, and that was like that until last year, late last year, when I started to really pay attention to NFTs, um, it caught my eye and I was, I, I, at first, you know, you say, oh, that's just pictures. Like, well, it doesn't make sense. Anyone can own a picture online, but I started to let my curiosity finally take place in the underlying technology. Um, and so I ended up going to, um, NFT Basel in Miami. Um, it's, uh, during art Basel week. And I went to that conference with the mindset of what does philanthropy look like? What does fundraising? I, I put my nonprofit hat on, went into this uh, conference and met a lot of people who were working on different projects. I saw the passion in the air. And that's when I realized like, oh, this is this is serious. Like this technology is going to disrupt a lot. So since then, I've been very passionate about the space. I've been very just learning, meeting with people, meeting with creators in the Web3 space. I just wanted to learn. So I'm still a sponge. I'm still learning. I'm still researching. I'm, I'm figuring out marketing in this space. I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to what businesses are doing. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I encourage anyone really just if, if, if you're questioning it or if you have concerns or um, just, just dig into it a little bit and you'll find an avenue that you'll like. So 
um, yeah, I, I'm so glad I did because it, it brought me back to life. Tell us more about your research in this space and, and what, is the, what are the scholars saying? Well, crypto is really the future of the digital economy. And so just as the internet revolutionized society by being a global decentralized permissionless network of information, crypto is really about a global decentralized permissionless network of value transfer. So it's a relatively nascent research literature. Uh, in fact, when I started at the university in 2012, maybe a handful of scholars had heard about Bitcoin. And so over time, there's been growing interest, not just on the research, the academic side, but also on the practitioner side. A couple of very practical research questions that are being addressed right now is, is what even is, is cryptocurrency? To what extent does it act like a traditional currency? Does it move like the U.S. dollar? Is it an asset? Uh, to what extent does it act like an asset? Some other interesting research questions, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later, is, is how do you value non-fungible tokens, NFTs. So some of these Web3 technologies, crypto technologies can become a very powerful tool for philanthropy. And so where the research side can help is providing some clarity on what exactly this is, how do you value that, and really what are best practices around using those tools. So if, I, if I'm a higher ed institution and I don't accept crypto, these, this is what I would focus on is finding, um, and Michael shared this with me when, when we spoke a while back, is, is finding the faculty members and finding, you know, your employees who are knowledgeable uh, about crypto because um, they are out there. there. There's a lot of people who are learning and diving in and it's just naturally curious and sort of forming a focus group around what does this look like for the university? So gathering some individuals from different parts of campus bringing a focus group together, not meeting once a quarter, but meeting actively, you know, maybe once or twice a month, figuring out what does this look like? You t- when you take a step back, you'll see the big, all the big banks have people working on crypto. A lot of institutions are working on crypto. Businesses are working on crypto. So there's a lot to learn from. People are already doing and are actively in the space. And I know for higher ed, that's really important to see what you know, what others are doing in the space, how are they evolving? There are a lot of institutions and universities that are, are accepting crypto through the giving block or another or Coinbase um, or endowment. There's some who's trying to figure out how to create their own wallet. Um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but understanding what it can be, you know, what it can provide for your university is really important. What that will also allow you to do is to talk about strategy. And that's one area where we're lacking sort of as a nonprofit community is, yes, we're accepting crypto, but it's time where we start coming together to talk about how do we efficiently accept crypto? What kind of campaigns can come? What kind of campaigns can we create um, to target, you know, specific crypto groups um, or those who just donate, you know, NFTs, whatever that may be. Um, and then you have the DAO's uh, side of things. So there's a lot to be talked about. There's, it's very confusing, but I promise you there are f- people around you that know it. That's great. And can you share with us more about the research taking place on your campus right now? Absolutely. So here at the University of Cincinnati, we are actually launching a crypto economics lab in the fall. It's part of a digital futures building where there's going to be interdisciplinary scholarship and research that takes place across AI and VR and cybersecurity. Our particular lab will have a thousand square feet with 15 students, PhDs and master's and undergraduate students. We're going to be working with the community on various 
research questions. And we're going to have hardware. It's going to be, frankly, pretty fun. We're going to have mining hardware in there. We'll have wallets to store cryptocurrency. And in fact, right now, we've got a mining rig that's generating cryptocurrency for a nonprofit in our community. Every day, it's generating cryptocurrency, and we're able to share that with this particular nonprofit. I'd just like to say, Michael, that um, they are living in like 2050 right now. Just how advanced they are driving and leading the way and paving the way. I have no doubt in my mind that a lot of universities are going to be looking at what they are doing because really, they're it's it's incredible how fast and the support that they have. So. Um, when it comes down to universities, um, I think there's still a misconception about crypto. There's still a lot of unknowns. Um, the education is really important right now. And so I think it's good to understand that I had a discussion with my friends yesterday, actually, about, well, you know, crypto is taxed. There's still so many unknowns. But one thing that I reminded them was that the underlying technology is what you need to focus on. Um, realizing that there are a lot of institutions, the big banks, uh, con uh, consulting firms, they are all figuring out and studying crypto and what is possible in like the overall Web3 space. So really trying to understand that the technology is there and with time, we'll see more regulation and we'll see more um, use cases. But right now it's important. I think the overall landscape is figuring out how to utilize it, how to talk about it with alumni um, I had a conversation with a fintech company the other day, um, and they mentioned that their average age of crypto donations is 21. And so when you when you say that out loud and when you say that in a room of advancement and foundation folks, I would assume like ding, 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 like you have like the light flashes up and it's like this may be the perfect opportunity and way to build pipeline, you know, for the future. And so overall education um, and understanding that crypto is just the surface, um, what's under the surface is a lot more fascinating, but I'm glad because the conversation has started and a lot of universities and, and, and state colleges are really looking forward to incorporating accepting crypto donations. And that's, that's, that's exciting for me. Michael, what is Web3? Shortest definition is, is self-sovereignty in the digital economy. And what I mean by that is to contrast Web1 with web two and now web three. So web one is where you would host your information on another server. You had a username and password when you logged into a website and you have a hundred different usernames and passwords. That, that's web one. Web two is you still go to websites to log in, but now you use Google login. You use Facebook's login. You use some other third party. And so that is web two. But again, in both of those cases, there's still an intermediary that Google will see your username and password. They'll see how you interact with that website. They control, they control the data. And, and in fact, they can cut you off. Web three, in contrast, is that you control your data. You control your identity. And so now when you log into a website or you send funds to someone else, you authenticate that you are the sole owner of these funds. You are the sole owner of this identity. And that's really important as we start thinking about nonprofits, because now I can trace exactly who is the identity of the person sending those funds. And there's no intermediary that's eavesdropping or uh, somehow able to manipulate that data. I'm engaged in a study right now uh, talking to chief advancement officers and of a few dozen conversations, so many of them mentioned 
the desire to want to make sure that we're capturing our younger alumni and our, our new graduates and maintaining that connection that they have to the organization, but how difficult that's become. And I think that by identifying crypto donors almost as their own affinity group, that these are these are folks who, at least for the past 10, 15 years graduating from organizations, if we're looking at traditional aged college students, then we're looking, we're seeing how engaged they could be just by using this giving vehicle. And we don't treat donor advised funds that way. We don't treat stock donations that way. But now looking at these, this donor base, this donor population, they are unique. They have the capacity to give and they're ready to change the world. Uh, Gen Z is ready to burn it down or they're burning it down. So how do we as nonprofits, how do we show up and meet them where they are um, yes. and partner with them in that way? Um, Michael, do you have a sense in your in your research or in your space more about crypto donors, crypto philanthropists, and what some of the motivations for them might be? What are they supporting? What do they care about? Sure. People who got into crypto certainly early on have a particular worldview. And if you think about cryptocurrency as disintermediated money, so most of our financial transactions go through an intermediary, whether that's the bank cashing your check, Visa, processing your transaction uh, as a credit card, Venmo, all of that is, is going through a central intermediary. Crypto has a disintermediated uh, way of, of moving money around. So people that are motivated uh, to use that system generally are maybe distrustful of some of the traditional financial systems. That's certainly changing over time. But if you think about the people who have generated a lot of wealth, a significant amount of wealth in this space, they are particularly motivated by certain areas. Technology is a key one. Bitcoin is distributed ledger technology. And so they are interested in advancing uh, research and, and applications and technology, generally around open source and freedom of speech. Uh, so they primarily value those those ideas of, of liberty, of freedom. But of course, now things are starting to change as we see universities, we're, we're a laggard, but as universities get in, as the, the traditional big bank starts to get in, of course, the donor is now shifting. I think, quite frankly, a lot of people now just have it as part of their, their assets. And if you look at the number of people that are under the age of 30 that own, own cryptocurrency, it's a significant amount. And so now universities and, and nonprofits just need to be able to accept it just as a, another asset, uh, just like a stock, just like property. If, if you're not able to accept that, you're, you're really just frankly missing out on a, on a big opportunity. But that's really the first step. So I, I do think that's important. Joel's talked about the education piece and why nonprofits need to be able to accept it. I think where things are shifting and moving is how are you going to use that? So once you receive a cryptocurrency as a nonprofit, most right now, most organizations just convert that uh, to traditional currency and deposit that in their bank account. And that's fine. That's, that's the first step, the first phase. But where things are really exciting, and I'm sure we can have this conversation, is how do you actually use uh, crypto to maybe reorganize the way your nonprofit functions? Or how do you use cryptocurrency to, to make donations and grants? Uh, and, and that's where things need to be moving. So we learned this week in the news uh, that Bentley University is accepting cryptocurrency for their tuition. You talked about how nonprofits and universities are using the currency more. What would be other examples, other ways in which they can engage with it? 
Sure. So the, the, the receipt is, is definitely the, the obvious place. And we've seen that as universities more and more start to accept it for tuition payments. Um, other ways that you're, you're starting to see it is on the donation side, on the giving side. So I'll, I'll talk not so much about universities. They're still very early on, but other nonprofits are actually making grants, making donations in crypto. And so what that allows to do is it promotes transparency. And if I'm a, a donor, I can see exactly when those transactions were made. I can see exactly where those transactions went to. And, and we can think about what's happening right now in Russia and Ukraine. It was really a watershed moment in crypto because within just a day or two of the war starting, the Ukrainian government put up its wallet. I mean, that was a pinned tweet on its timeline was here's our wallet. And you had tens of millions of dollars that was being donated directly from nonprofits to governments, individual citizens to governments. It, it really put crypto on the on the map as a new way of thinking about moving money from one organization to another. I'd just like to give a shout out. I met with um, Alex Kim, who is the president of the Bentley Blockchain Association, um, and Alex, just to put in a perspective, he started this as a student and a student was able to form a group, get students around, educate, uh, you know, um, professors, educate um, higher up folks in, in, in the university. And look where we're at right now. Bentley is accepting crypto. So if that doesn't say anything about sort of the way to build relationships with not only students, young alumni, um, and just anyone who's in crypto at all, um, it's a very powerful tool. So it's it's you can't ignore the fact that there's a lot of students already heavily involved in the space. Joel, would you sh would you share more of your thoughts about the areas in which crypto donors seem to be drawn to or interested in? We we have the data, we have the research that indicates uh, generationally where people are interested in supporting. We know that women are more likely to support educational endeavors and, and nonprofits related to children. Um, if we could, if we could guess, if we could broad stroke this and look at the crypto crypto donor um, and make some assumptions, what are the areas that they care about? It's pretty amazing because everyone has something they really care about, and so crypto gives them the opportunity to build. So, for example, I've met with students who have created their own NFT projects and they want to give back to healthcare, or they want to give up, uh, they want to give up, uh, you know, donations for diversity efforts. Um, so it really is just a, overall the trends that we are seeing now is, is pretty much the focus on crypto donors, what they're giving to. So a lot of social, a lot of, you know, arts and sciences. So, yeah, Mike, I know I know you um, have answers to that as well. Yeah, I want to provide a, a specific example. You brought up the issue of students generating NFTs. And I don't want to give away uh, too much here, but we have students right now that are developing a project in our School of Art. Uh, they've already formed it. We've created an NFT media lab at the university. And galleries can be an intermediary. Going back to where crypto is powerful, it's not just about uh, decentralizing financial transactions. It's really about decentralizing any kind of, of, of transaction. And so these students have already formed. They've got quite a bit of artwork pieces that are created. The business model is already there. Uh, they're going to launch here in the next month or two. And 70% of the funds from that sale is going to go directly to the artist. 
which is very different, right, than the traditional gallery model. Not only that, with, with the NFT, you can program it so that a certain portion of the remaining amount goes to a scholarship, the remaining amount goes to the university, and that's the stuff that we're seeing. Our donors are giving money to the university, to our crypto economics lab, because they, they tell me we want you to do projects like that. That's that's incredible. Uh, uh, let me know when I can get on that white list, Michael. <laughs> oh, no, you're you're going to get a list because we're going to market uh, this in the next two weeks. Uh, you'll get. <laughs> you'll, no, you'll get that, that's that's exciting. I, I kind of I want to go back to for a second um, when we talked about use cases and and what universities accepting crypto. We have to think about the transparency that we can see. So what the blockchain technology allows you to do is you can see exactly where the money's coming from, like who's it coming from. And that provides another access of, you know, being upfront with your donors. So if you have a campaign and they send money to your wallet um, during the campaign, you can see, oh, this much came in and this much came out. So with that, the university or nonprofits are able to say, this is how much we got in during the campaign. This is how much we took out. And this is where that money's going. Um, and so when you take a step back, that's a powerful tool because we are sort of regaining trust, building on trust. And to me, that's really, really important as time goes on um, with, with this technology. That's such a huge concept, especially when we think about higher education institutions or large nonprofits, just where we are right now with with the public's overall trust of these organizations and how many times we hear, especially as fundraisers, we hear, you don't need my money, look at your endowment. Mm -hmm. And just that lack of understanding of, hey, your tuition does not cover the full price of educating you in many, in many instances. So there's reasons people should be distrustful of some of these institutions. There's reasons that we need to, as organizations, build back trust and transparency is almost the, the perfect solution. It allows, it allows that trust to build in a very real and clear uh, way. And can I, can I make a comment on that? Sharing a little bit of research that I haven't published yet. I have a student that's going back and looking at all of the major community foundations, you know, the several hundred of them, and looking at what has been the change in unrestricted assets versus restricted over the last five years. And we're seeing a significant decline in unrestricted giving. And I think what that, that's telling you is that the donors, there is a sense of trust and it's actually showing up on the balance sheets. And so these organizations have less flexibility to do what they want. And, and really, I think crypto gives you a chance to reset the clock because now you can provide that, uh, I think, sense of comfort and trust when you say we still want to use those funds for unrestricted purposes. But now you can see exactly where that flow of funds and how it's being used. Michael, I, uh, I'm not sure if, if you've dived into um, the domain, Ethereum um, network domain services, um, but I, I registered uh, unrestrictedfund.eth. Mm. So, for example, um, having that wallet and branding it, if a nonprofit, say, when I'm building my nonprofit, I can market the unrestricted fund and people donating to that fund straight from their wallet they'll be able, that's just a transparency aspect. That's what's important to me is for the donors to know this is an unrestricted fund, but we're going to see exactly what comes in and whatever I take out, I'm going to break that down for you all to truly know and understand 
how nonprofits are, are, are organized and how where the money is going. I think, too, when we talk about trust of nonprofits or the trust that donors need to have in nonprofit organizations, it would be beneficial, in my opinion, for for us all to move in this direction. And that's not to say a super restricted gift implies that there's no trust. It might just mean a special area of interest or a desire to fund a specific component of the mission. But when we look at the philanthropy of Mackenzie Scott and the way that she did the research on the front end, knew what organizations she trusted in, and some are calling this trust-based philanthropy, and then made these significant unrestricted gifts for these organizations that were truly transformational for them. So this all is in line with once that trust is established and the donor has that intention to support that organization, and then they give uh, through some mechanism on the blockchain that allows everybody to see, it provides that transparency. We all, as a community, as a society, have a sense of how we're solving our societal ills, how we are as individuals or as collectives choosing to solve our society's problems. Do either of you have a comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I can add to that. I think she has by picking those nonprofits and indicating I have complete trust in how they're going to use the funds. She's making a statement too, that trust doesn't go away. Even with blockchain, it's where are you putting your trust? She has made it very clear that I trust the people and I trust the organization to make the right decisions with these funds. And so now when you take it to the, to the blockchain, again, trust doesn't go away. Uh, but what I'm doing is I'm saying, when I give it to this organization, I'm making sure that they are going to be transparent, but they have to be transparent. Right. I, I am trusting that the way those funds are going to be used, the network that it's going to be distributed by, I trust that network. I trust the transparency. So it's, it's just shifting who you trust when we have these conversations, not necessarily that trust ever really goes away. So let's bring it back to um, 101 real quick. Um, Joelle, what's an NFT? Oh, man, I can answer this a hundred thousand different ways. Um well, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Um, it's a type of a tradable digital asset um, that's stored on the blockchain. These digital assets can be bought, they can be sold, traded um, between just different crypto wallets. NFTs, it's still early on and I still think they're developing. Um, I have kind of went down the rabbit hole of, of Web3 and NFT communities that are active in the space. Um, Twitter is one of the most active communities um, where we see uh, projects left and right, um, you know, having town halls, having meetings, having emergency meetings. And it, at the end of the day, to me, it's it provides an opportunity for someone to show what they are about, what they're passionate about, what they like. You can collect art from different artists. You can have an NFT that represents a mission. Um, so, for example, there are a lot of NFT projects that 100% of their proceeds go to uh, nonprofits or to support specific missions. Um, and then overall, then there's just those projects that are like the blue chips that are building brands. Um, you have like the board apes and the crypto punks. So it really is very early to say for sure what nfts are but the use cases of what nfts can do i think will disrupt almost every single market 
again, what it allows is transparency. So you can't fake anything. You can't pretend you have something. Um, like, for example, if we go to the movies or if we go to a concert, if we receive that ticket through uh, an NFT, then when we sell it, we know that the person selling it actually has the ticket. And so it's, it, it, you know, we don't have scammers or anything like that. So it's, I'm still trying to figure out the right answer and how to, how to answer what NFTs are, but it's everything. I think they will be incorporated almost in every industry one way or another as, as we figure out better use cases. Let's talk about maybe how they're used. So Joel sure. talked about as a collectible. And so that's that's really important because what NFTs do, talked about transparency, it establishes provenance. So when you want to value an artwork, you really need to know the, the chain of custody all the way from the origin, the artist to the current person who possesses it. So that's what NFTs do and allow for digital art is that all of the sales from the origin all the way through. Uh, but it, what it also does is it's programmable art. And here's what's really powerful about collectible NFTs is that when you initially issue that what we call minting an NFT, you can program it so that a certain percentage of those sales go to the artist, a certain percent go to the nonprofit that you're supporting. And not only the initial sale, what's really powerful there is the resale. If someone purchased that NFT from uh, the original artist and then that is purchased again in the chain, you can program it so that 5% of those sales still go back to the artist, which is great for empowering the artist or to the nonprofit. The second thing I would say, how they're used, again, we'll, we'll, we'll skip the technical details, but they're also used uh, for utility or experiential purposes. And that's where I think nonprofits are, are really seeing the space moving, is that once you have that NFT, it brings you in the community. And the community decides, it's almost like a, a membership pass if you have that NFT, when you talk about Board Ape Yacht Club and things like that. So how universities can use that, particularly on athletics, if you have this NFT of your players or of the stadium or maybe of a moment where your team scored the game-winning touchdown, now you can maybe get access uh, to, a, to a, a tour of the locker rooms or you can get access to the stadium. And, and so that's the second, I think, big use case of NFTs is using them as, as a membership or, or providing extra benefits for those holders. We know that donors, uh, many donors, give to get. They they make their annual fund gift, so they get the tchotchke, they get the sunglasses, and um, I've had some fun conversations about what is the scenario where we're no longer giving away branded socks, but with a donation of this amount, you're getting this mascot NFT, or you're getting, does it, is this example, does this work? Yeah, it absolutely works, and it makes it really hard from the valuation. So going back to the very first question you asked, which is how do you value these things? We really need to have some principles in play on how do you place value on the experience? How do you place value on the actual NFT? Because you're right, when you want to record the value of that donation, you have to have those ideas and very clear principles in mind. And is that something that the industry has not figured out yet? There's certainly not standards on what that looks like. And there, there's still just a lot of uncertainty on those on those areas. What does the resale value look like? And, and, and even just a basic question of where does the funds go back to? So if the university issues that NFT, well, that means does the university hold the wallet? Are they the, the, the recipient themselves? Do they have a custodian? So you have, of course, qualified custodians. Maybe universities say, we don't want anything to do with this. We're going to you know, partner with a Coinbase or Gemini. 
all of these questions are being wrestled with right now. Uh, and I don't have all the answers, but I know I want to I want UC to be leading the way. I think it's great because it's it's important to understand with the new technology, we have the ability to help pave that road. And that's why I'm just so I'm, I'm such an advocate for the space, because to me, it's important for the nonprofit industry to really take a step back and understand we can help design what this is going to be for the future. Michael, you mentioned the community of, of NFTs, and I know through our work, through some of our clients who accept crypto donations, uh, that they've received donations from DAOs, from Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, which makes me think of this group give. Uh, that this this collective give this mindset of we are all making this decision we have shared values we are as an organization or as a group or as a DAO are going to find an organization that aligns with those values and and support them in that way the model itself is rooted in the history of philanthropy this is how churches give. This is how women's circles give. And so oftentimes these organizations are meeting in person. There's a luncheon, there's some kind of chicken dish at that lunch. So the concept, um, at least on the philanthropy component, feels very familiar to me. Uh, But can, can we talk about what you've seen with these DAOs and how they are selecting nonprofits to support and more importantly, how do nonprofits um, set themselves up to work with these DAOs? Yeah, so, so so DAOs are DAOs. So so you'll you'll hear I'll use that phrase. Yeah. So so DAOs are really the the final step in the progression. So we talked about these evolutionary steps. First step is just accepting crypto as property. The second step is being innovative in in donating or or using crypto to make transactions, being transparent. So that's our second phase. The 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 really the revolutionary not the those two things are just evolutionary maybe a, you know easier way to send money more transparent but but the revolutionary way of using crypto are these DAOs. and and the, de- the definition I've, I've best heard of a DAO is a, a group bank account uh, with, with chat right so it's a shared treasury everyone contributes the funds and we know what share of those funds belongs to each person who made those contributions and decisions are made on how to allocate those funds. So GitDAO uh, is one of the most common uh, DAOs that exists. People collectively donate thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of cryptocurrency. It goes into one bank account, one fund, and the community, the members decide who are the recipients of those funds. And the recipients are uh, programmers, uh, technologists, people who are involved in the space to create new open source applications. So again, open source just means the computer code can be visible. It's very transparent. So these DAOs are still keeping their historical roots focused on making these donations. Now, the, re- the revolution, though, is that's, that's where things have started. But what if you start to even organize your nonprofit around a DAO? And, and what does that mean? So uh, I serve on a board, and I'm sure probably everybody here on this call serves on a board. And so you get together, you meet as a board, you vote on certain issues and, and where the funds are going to be allocated. So instead, what if you have a, a DAO for the nonprofit board and one the, once those votes are recorded, one, they're, they're transparent, so everybody can see that. But then two, those funds are automatically executed and sent immediately to the recipient. And, and that's the real power. Uh, so, so that's the brief background. Um, there's a lot of issues. Uh, there's still a lot of legal issues to work out, um, technological issues, but I'll, I'll stop there just to provide the context. 
I've spent a lot of time thinking about DAOs because it's just an interesting concept, uh, especially especially in philanthropy. So I'm gonna make I'll make I'm gonna make two predictions of what I think uh, DAOs, how universities specifically will how they will be involved with DAOs. The first, I think that there will be a position um, that s- uh, serves as a liaison to some of the biggest DAOs um, around, and so that person will have relationships with these different DAOs um, and serve as an advocate for the university, uh, talk about the initiatives. Um, another, uh, another prediction is I think alumni groups. So when you think of a big institution, um, regions can be their own DAOs. Um, and that is another way to for alumni to have more of a hands-on position and more of a voice um, I think DAOs will revolutionize the way, you know, we work with our alumni. Um, so those are two different ways. It's one, looking at the bigger DAOs that already have millions, if not billions of dollars, um, and having that person be an advocate. And the other use, focusing on bringing alumni in to be more involved in this manner. So thinking about the alumni DAOs, the other real power of that is it can be really hard for a university to identify and reach out to its alumni, its donors. like. Where are they working? What's their email address? I, you know, I've seen this on the inside as the faculty. But what happens if your alumni has a wallet? Well, well they're not going to lose that wallet. You know, their Yahoo.com, they may, who cares, or their old AOL.com. But if their wallet, which has their funds and also it establishes their identity, you have a direct one-to-one communication with them now. The other powerful thing about that is I can directly message the person on the other side with that wallet. I don't need to go to a third party again, right? This is, again, promoting that idea of not going through an intermediary, but having that peer-to-peer relationship that DAOs make possible. As a fundraiser who sends hundreds of emails, uh, I am very excited for the moment in time where I can just connect with someone through their wallet. <laughs> God bless that bounce back email, right? After oh, man, classic. It never fails. It never fails. You, you get all detailed and personal about where, why you want to visit them. <laughs> so when we think about, you know, some one, some common things that people have talked about in alumni relations, some common gripes is that we had a history of being the connector. We were the host. We would throw the party. The alumni would come to us and thank you, Facebook. But now everybody has their own situation. They have their own organizations. They are meeting for girls trips or fishing trips or golf trips. And the university is no longer this central hub that I have to go back to my reunion to see my friends. No, I just saw them last weekend because we have, we've already been in connection with one another. And I see many times fundraisers trying to get the invitation to the party. They want to, they want to be where these organizations already exist or where these, these informal organizations already exist. And I see in some way these, these DAOs as an opportunity to be a part of the community or Joelle, as you mentioned, being an advocate of your organization or your university to that existing community. And also that there are tremendous, tremendous opportunities for continued engagement. So it's not just that initial interaction where everyone in the DAO says, yep, we want to support this program. We're going to make this gift. But how do we engage them further? How are we able to, using technology, 
how are we able to provide those updates, show that impact, continue to engage with them, provide more opportunities for them to be involved or even act as advocates for the organization. So the next time that giving day comes around or that match comes around, because we know our crypto donors are super into the gamification of it all. Um, we, they want to see matches. They want to be each other's coins out, right? So I think that there's there's just tremendous opportunity far beyond the initial gift for that type of engagement. What do you guys see for that type of engagement for those organizations or for crypto philanthropists in general? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think you I think just simple answer is how close that group will become and just the diversity of that group. So if you have a DAO or if you have these, you know, these these alumni groups, whatever that may be, automatically you will probably have a younger base running it and being more active. But when have you ever had an event where the younger alumni is, you know, uh, working alongside sort of like the older alumni and and bridging the mission together? So I think you have to take a step back again to to understand sort of this is something new that can bring everyone together. And usually I feel like we have, we target events. So whether we target like specific events for your college or, you know, you'll have like a 40 under 40 or again, like giving day. But what this allows is to bring all those people in one and sort of they communicate with themselves and work themselves. So I don't know. I I think it's a very, again, I think DAOs are early and we're going to learn a lot about it, but the community aspect at the end of the day, I think, bridging people together, um, you'll have a stronger base that is ready to support and is ready to to spread the message on on your mission. Yeah, I'll, and I'll add to that a bit. And I'll, I want to give credit to Luis Diaz. Uh, his post came across my LinkedIn a few days ago. He is the executive director at uh, Evangel Giving at Mullenberg College. And, and he talked about how the traditional donor cycle of discovery and cultivation and solicitation stewardship, it's really uh, kind, of, kind of broken. And what, it, what what really matters is drawing those donors in with something they can't obtain elsewhere, something that they can co-create together. And I think we're seeing that a little bit at the University of Cincinnati. And this is how we got started with the crypto mining rigs that we got. We had a donor and they donated their rig and they said, it's broken. And they said, we want students to fix it to get experience. And they did. So the students learned the process. They got it up and running. They, we, they fixed everything. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go to our donors, alumni, and say, you donate a rig, you, you can you can get $5,000, $10,000, but that's one-time use, or you can get five or $10,000. The student gets the opportunity to set up the rig themselves. They learn about the mining. They learn how to become a node. And now it's generating funds that go to that wallet, uh, you know, happy to brand it. We've, we actually have done this. We've got custom mining rigs. We've, we've put them in our makerspace. But now we can perpetually give crypto instead of just that one time. We can we can co-create together. And I think that's what what crypto and DAOs allow us to do. I saw I, I saw that post and I almost commented like the kids say you woke up and chose violence <laughs> because it was a, it was a post that really is this. It, when you think about it, it's the disruption of our industry like we have worked um, I know I've only been in the, in the fundraising game, you know, for a few years, but having conversations with fundraisers who have spent a long time, there's always been that donor cultivation. There's always been the same way we've done this, but you have to think 
about the next generation, they don't necessarily kind of work like that. They they don't care about, uh, you know, going and, and talking and, and building that relationship. Like, yeah, they care about it, but, you know, they will also be happy just shooting $30, $40, whatever it may be to your wallet. So it's important to think that uh, I think that we're not trying to replace anything. We're just trying to add on for this next generation. Um, and that at the end of the day will benefit, will be beneficial. If you have that mindset is this is not, we're not trying to change our, our, the ways we do things. We just have to make sure that we don't miss the mark on engaging with our younger alumni or just our younger donors. Absolutely. And I think, you know, while that donor life cycle is kind of up for up for debate in many ways, and the pandemic has, has certainly had implications on that donor cycle. One thing I talk to um, our organizations, our clients about when they are accepting crypto is the huge, vast difference oftentimes in development shops between the person working with young alumni and social and the principal gift officer. And that now working with a high net worth crypto donor is going to be a combination of both of those responsibilities, meaning they might identify your organization, become more engaged because of Twitter. But then when it comes time for them to make a significant transformational gift, they're going to want the white glove treatment of a principal gift officer. And it's going to be, a, you know, it's going to be a, a, a gift that requires that, that level of concern and care that the gift officer and Oftentimes, our offices, our shops are so segmented based on level of care. And I don't know if that model applies anymore. Hearing you talk about the traditional cycle is illuminating to me. And I, and I think you're right. Just in my conversations with donors and alumni, it's also they want to be connected to the university. So I can just share this as a faculty member myself. It's one thing for somebody associated with the foundation or a principal gift officer, but it's another thing for that faculty member to reach out and have a conversation. Let's let's come back and let's talk about where you are. And it's not about raising funds. It's, it's truly about being authentic. And I think if you're a university, if you're not using those real connection points uh, with the faculty, we have that relationship, uh, I think you're really missing out on a big opportunity. And so part of, I think, the University of Cincinnati's goal is to be more involved. Let's have this space where faculty are, where students are, and you can bring those donors in, but they, they want to see it. They, they don't want to just go to a steakhouse with the principal gift officer, like, like you said, bring me in, help me co-create, help me learn. Well, thank you, Michael and Joel. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Make Mission podcast. We could talk for a lot longer uh, about crypto philanthropy, Web3, and all things 2020, uh, 2050, 2055, uh, as scary as that is. But um, Michael, best of luck to you, your research, your lab, and your students. Joel, we will keep our eyes on you and your success, especially your success around your virtual nonprofit. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast. Our mission is to elevate philanthropy so nonprofits can flourish. To learn how we do it, visit podcast.grampelton.com.